While you're making your way back to your seats, let me just also extend a warm welcome to everybody who's here. Thankful for you guys that are coming out to First Baptist Church. We really appreciate you making the time to come. Uh, warm welcome to people who follow us online, whether you're local but you follow us online or whether you're in another area and you follow us. God bless you. Thank you for listening. I hope God will use this for you in your life. Can I, can I just take a minute before we get started and just say um, on behalf of all the pastors here on, at church, um, so many of you have taken time to share a word or a card or a gift for this pastor's appreciation month. I don't know, whatever. It's been, it's been very kind, truly overwhelming, and just thank you, truly. It means a lot to us that you care and that you would express it in that way. Um, gifts aside, just a word of thanks and encouragement really, really does go a long way, and we, and we really appreciate it. If by chance we don't get to you personally to return the thanks, just know it's, it's meant a lot to us, so, so we do thank you for that. Matt mentioned it, 2020 uh, is almost over. Holy cow. Um, you know, we started this year having no idea what we'd get into when it all kind of went south in March. Um, we started talking about the rapture and all these things and how it could be very soon. Well, the clock's still ticking, so it still could be very soon. I mean, it is possible, right? The rapture could come, well, any day, but just for the sake of conversation, let's just say next year. And if that's the case, then we all go out alive. I mean, boom, there we go. You know, I mean, we're out. And, and where the Bible refers to that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, what if that thing is like, in 15 minutes. I mean, I mean, it's 2020 is almost over and that clock is ticking. That's awesome. But what's next? Well, what's next is the subject of our Bible study today, and it's called the judgment seat of Christ. That's what's next. After the rapture of the church, we who are caught away with Jesus Christ, and man, that glorious day we look forward to, the next event for us, is this thing called the judgment seat of Christ. Now just by review, I just want to make a statement. Many of you are aware of this, and maybe not everybody, but you should be aware of the fact that there are seven different judgments in the Bible. There's not just one general judgment. See, that's what lost people think. Lost people think that there's just one general judgment of all people, and that that judgment is based on whether or not we've done good enough in our life. In fact, people are lost because they think that. They, because they think that whether or not you have an eternity with the Lord is based on whether you've done good enough. Whether you think at the end of your life your good works have outweighed your bad works, and whenever we do that, we always want to compare ourselves to the lowest rascal we know. We always find some slug who's done terrible things, and we're like, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. And we don't compare ourselves to the only standard the Bible gives us, and that's Jesus Christ. But you need to understand there's seven judgments in the Bible, and, well, all judgment, the Bible says, is committed to the Son of God. And 
all judgment is going to be according to the Word of God. The Bible calls that judging righteous judgment. And not all of the seven judgments have to do with us. Thank the Lord. Right? There's a judgment of the nation of Israel. That's what we commonly refer to as the time of tribulation. Uh, there's the judgment of the Gentile nations. That's what sometimes we refer to as the sheep and the goats judgment. Uh, there's that thing called the great white throne judgment, which sometimes is referred to the judgment of the unsaved dead. And then there's a thing in the Bible where it talks about the judgment of angels. Those don't have anything to do with us. But there's three left. And the three that are left actually have to do with us. So there's the judgment of sin that was placed on Jesus Christ on Calvary. So when he died, he died for your sins, and he took your judgment upon him. If you have appropriated that to yourself by faith in his name, well, then you're saved. That's the judgment that brings your salvation. Then there's another judgment that we refer to as uh, the Christian's daily self-judgment. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. And if we will daily judge our own selves in our own lives, then we keep our accounts short with the Lord and we walk with Him in the power of the Spirit. That's biblical sanctification. And then there's this thing called the judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment seat of Christ ultimately judges the Christian's service. So the Christians have the judgment concerning salvation, concerning sanctification, and concerning service. But the thing I want you to understand, so much so that I actually want you to fill out a little blank in your, in your notes, is this, is that we tend to underplay the severity of this judgment. I think that's true. I think that too many Christians think that, well, that trumpet's going to blow and come up hither is going to be said and it's all going to be over in the blink of an eye and, well, then we just go off into this glorious, perfect, eternal bliss and harmony ever to be with the Lord, and, well, God tells us about the judgment seat of Christ because He wants you to know that it's going to be a little bit more serious than that. But you know what? He does love you enough to tell you about it, so that's good. Listen, just think about it for a second. Just think about how if you worked your entire life to build your savings for retirement, and then just before you retire, the market crashes hard. And you literally lose, well, most everything that you worked your whole life to have and to enjoy. How would that feel? Your retirement, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, however much you would get after you retire, well, it wouldn't be all that pleasant, would it? That welcome to Walmart just doesn't ring in your ears quite as well as you'd think. So consider a version of that story not having to last 15 years, but a thousand. You see, that market crash may be your judgment seat of Christ. In fact, that's actually not a bad analogy because... This life is all about investing wisely. That's what it's about. And Jesus told you how to do it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So today we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about this event, the judgment seat of Christ, and, well, can I just steal the terminology and say it is a 100% money-back guarantee that it is going to happen. It is going to happen. So we're just going to take a few short verses. I originally was going to take a larger portion of Scripture. I just felt like we needed to just camp here, and we're just going to look. We're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Hopefully you're ready there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we left off in verse 8. We're just going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11. So follow along verses 9 through 11. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And Heavenly Father, as we dig into this subject, we desire to have your mind concerning it. And Lord, I do want to say on behalf of all of us, thank you for loving us enough to warn us in advance about how you judge things and how it's going to play out and what we might be able to expect. And I pray that you'll take this study today and teach us that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher that we'll receive what you have. And Lord, if there's people here who need to get right, that today will be the day that they will. If they've never received the forgiveness of sin by passing their judgment on to you in Calvary, that they would do that today and, and be saved. But for those of us who have done that, that we would take a good hard look at examining ourselves and project what that judgment seat just might look like for us if that rapture were to come in 15 minutes. Lord, we love you, and we desire to hear these things, and we want to serve you with all we've got left. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, the first thing that we're going to look at, and we're going to break this into four separate categories and three short verses. I know it's amazing. Is We're going to not necessarily just go in order. We always go in exact order. We're going to mix up the order just a little bit. The first thing is the requirement. I feel like we need to start with the prereqs, right, the requirement, and we're going to start in verse number 10, actually. Now, like I just prayed and like we talked about, I mean, thank God, Jesus already took on himself your sin, right, and your eternal judgment when he went to Calvary so that you could receive the free gift of eternal life. Amen. But for all of us that avoided that judgment, we're all going to face this judgment. Because it says in verse number 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's no maybes. There's no most of us. We must all appear. Some of you just need to let that sink in for a second. There's no getting out of it. And so we're going to look at it in a couple of short ways. And again, this is a simple thing, but I wanted to break this down in a way that you can really get your arms around it. And the first thing is letter number A in your outline, and that's your appointment. That's what he's setting up. He's setting up for you an appointment. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 describes it this way. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, 
the judgment. Ah, face it, nobody likes judgment. It's not your happy thought. Be, the idea of being judged, I mean, that's not something you're looking forward to with joy. I get it. For unsaved people, people who have never surrendered their heart and their life and accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, asking Him to forgive them of their sins and come and be the Lord of their life. For those people, that judgment, it's appointed unto men once to die, and then right after that, the judgment. For them, the judgment is for their sins. And actually, that'll take place at the great white throne. But for us, who have already received the forgiveness of, th of sins, thank the Lord, right? Then it's appointed also unto us in this flesh to die once, right? The only exception being the people who go out at the rapture of the church. But the general rule is appointed unto men once to die, even Christians. And after that, we also have a judgment, but ours isn't for our sins. Ours is for our works. And that judgment is the judgment seat of Christ. And if you're in the category of the saved, and I am confident that probably most all of you are, then if you're in the category of the saved, there will be no exceptions and there will be no substitutes. God set an appointment with you and you will be there. You will be there. It's, it says in verse 10 that everyone, right, everyone, Give account for the things that are done in his body according to that he hath done. Singular, individual, each and every one of us. There'll be no hiding in the crowd that day. I mean, just think about that for a second. Just you and Jesus Christ. One-on-one. -on -one, face to face. No one else is there to distract. No one else is there to help or to bail you out. And before you can experience the part that you've been anticipating to experience, the joy and the crying and the hugging and all of that, well, there's some business to tend to. And that business that needs to be tended to, well, I've put down letter B in your outline, and we'll call that your accounting. You've got an appointment, and the appointment is for an accounting. Now we're going to go to Romans chapter 14, and Romans chapter 14 would be another definitive passage that gives us information on the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to jump in in verse number 10. Romans 14, 10, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, if you're paying attention to the words of those verses and you look in verse 10, where it says, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then you go down to verse 12, every one of us will give account of himself to God, you just define the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Among many other places, that proves that Jesus Christ is God. Well, unless you're reading an ESV or an NASB or an NIV or a Holman Christian Standard Bible or a New Revised, and I could go on and on and on because there 
Romans 14.10 would say, we must all stand before the judgment seat of God. And just subtly stealing the deity of Jesus Christ. Lest I digress. Your appointment is to give account notice of yourself to God. That's what it says. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We talk about it being the judgment of your works or your service to Christ, and I think that that's true. I think it's clear, but think about it this way. What you have done in the body since your salvation, or as the case may be, what you have not done as a Christian, well, it reflects on who you are, doesn't it? It reflects on who you are in Christ. Go back to our text in verse number 11. It says, but we are made manifest unto God. You see that? The, the, the very soul, the very being of who we are is actually made manifest when face-to-face -face before Jesus Christ, it is revealed what we have actually done that's of any substance in our lives. You know, they talk about talk is cheap, right? Actions really speak louder than words, don't they? And that's what this is really all about. Listen, we're going to get into the details in just a minute, but I don't want you to miss this important point. You will stand before your Savior and you will give an account for yourself. There'll be no blame shifting here. You'll not be able to reference how anyone had done you wrong. You'll be without excuse. Oh, by the way, fear not, brethren. He'll get to them too. Oh, yeah. He'll get to them too. And he will judge them with the same righteous, holy perfection that he'll judge you. So Romans 14 starts out by saying, why dost thou judge thy brother? Why do you make your brother into a big nothing burger? Which is the contemporary equivalent of set at naught, thy brother. Why do you do that to your brother? Don't you know that each and every one of us stand before the judgment seat of Christ? You're going to stand before him for what you did. He'll or she'll stand before him for what he or she did. There's no need for us to look across the room and judge each other. I don't serve you and you don't serve me. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he will be the one to judge. But for now, let's get back to the point. It's just the two of you. You and Jesus. Serious stuff. I do want to point out that this doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ, well, it is the biblical answer to the typical charismatic criticism of the Baptist for believing once saved, always saved. The criticism goes something like this. You Baptists believe that once you're saved, you're eternally secure and you're always saved so that after you're saved, you can just run off and do anything you want. You go live like the devil if you want. It don't matter. That's why we don't believe that, because we think you should live a holy life. Okay, well, that's fine. You can think that all we want to do is pray a prayer and get our get-out-of-hell-free card and then continue to go live for the devil who destroyed our life before we were saved. 
Maybe that's what some of you might want to do, but I don't think that's what everybody wants to do. So they ask the question, do you believe that you can get saved and then go do whatever you want? Well, the answer would be no, absolutely not. Because there still is an accountability. And that accountability is not for your salvation. The accountability is at the judgment seat of Christ. You will give an account of yourself for how you lived your life after the free gift of salvation, which can never be taken away. Or you could answer that question this way if you like. It is my preferred way because it's a little snarky. (laughs) Do you believe that you can get saved and go live any way you want? And I would say yes, absolutely. Because in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5, it says, I'm a new creature and old things are passed away and all things are become new and I don't want to live that way anymore. So I'm free to live any way I want. I want to live for the Lord. Which means he made you servants unto righteousness, something, by the way, you could not have done before you were saved. So that's just the requirement of the judgment seat of Christ. We need to move on to number two, and that's the reality. And really, I I can't do enough justice to what I think God wants us to understand when he kicks off verse number 11. And he says, in the context of the judgment seat of Christ, verse number 10, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. That that terror of the Lord is not the terror that a lost man will feel when he dies without Christ and stands before the great white throne. That will be terrifying without question. That's not the context in 2 Corinthians 5.11 because it comes right after verse 10. It's just that easy. Now, terror, you, you guys understand English, it just means extreme fear. That's what it means. And that English word terror is only found in the New Testament in two other locations. I have them for you. Romans 13, 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. The rulers are typically in Romans 13, the the governmental authorities that, that rule the society in which we live. And their job is to punish evildoers, not well-doers. Maybe that'll change. If it does, we have the reference in 1 Peter 3.14. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. In both cases, what we have is a, the word terror is used in, con- in conjunction with a legal judgment. The ability to judge you and then implement consequences. That's how it's used. That same word that's translated terror is translated predominantly just fear throughout the Bible. But specifically, I want to point out a couple of places that, are, that show more extreme fear, like in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 9. It says, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. They weren't just fearful. They were very fearful. Or 
in Mark 4.41, and they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the first case in Luke 2.9, when they stand in the presence of God's glory, they were exceeding fearful. It was terrifying. Mark 4.41, when they realized his omnipotence, that he could control even the elements and the weather, wow, they feared exceedingly. So the rapture is indeed called our blessed hope. And the judgment seat of Christ is the ultimate realization of everything that we have believed by faith. So for all of our lives that are lived by sight or in the power of the flesh, well, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be terrifying. That's what it's going to be. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be terrifying. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. You see, this is the judgment of the believer's works, and, and it's very clearly described as the judgment by fire. You see, the other definitive passage describing the judgment seat of Christ, you have 2 Corinthians 5, you have Romans 14, and you have 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you've been in this church long enough, a couple of years ago we studied 1 Corinthians and we went through this. It's been quite a while. Let's refresh our memories. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse number 10. Paul says this, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now imagine with me, if you will, that you and all of your works are represented as you standing in a big warehouse and all of your works are like boxes surrounding you. And all the boxes that are around you represent all the different various works that you've done and over the course of your life. And you're gathered together and, and you're kind of, you're waiting, you're waiting for your turn to meet Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. And and, and, you know, you might be a little tentative, you might be a little nervous, but, you know, you're kind of looking around in this big warehouse, and it's empty, but it's you and your works, okay? And, but you look around, and you're like, you know, I, I mean, I got some boxes. I mean, I'm not without boxes. I mean, this might not be easy, but, man, I mean, you might start feeling okay about yourself for a minute. And, uh, and then... The door begins to crack and this blinding light starts to peek around the corners of the door and Jesus Christ is about to enter in and just about the time as he's about to enter, this massive blowtorch just flows through the entire warehouse and envelops everything that's in it. Oh, you'll be okay personally, don't worry. But you look around and you find what's left. You're okay personally because you've been saved. But what about your stuff? Well, that fire comes from the very eyes of Jesus Christ when you meet him face to face. Revelation chapter 1 gives us a description 
of what the glorified Jesus Christ looks like. Pick it up in verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. We can go down to Revelation chapter 19, and it's the literal bodily second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. Again, a physical description of what he will look like. In verse number 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And while I understand that Revelation chapter 19 is a picture of the literal second coming and he's coming to judge this earth and we will come and return with him at that moment, I do want to draw your attention to the fact that his glorified person is described specifically as having eyes as a flame of fire. And the judgment seat of Christ specifically is each and every one of us having an individual appointment with him for judgment. And oh yeah, that judgment is going to be by fire. That's why no natural man can stand in his presence. That's why no man can look on him in this state and live. But at the rapture of the church, we get glorified bodies so we can stand before him. But our works that are done in the flesh, well, they're not. They're not going to survive. God gives us a picture of this with the apostle Peter. You remember Peter? He's often enthusiastic, optimistic. Luke twenty two thirty one. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Here's Peter. He said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Man, it's awesome. What a commitment. What a dedication, what a willingness, what a declaration. I'm serious. What Peter has a positive mental attitude. You guys know I'm setting you up, don't you? <laughs> He's feeling pretty good about himself right now. Let's see how that works for him. Verse 34. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. You know the story. Jesus gets arrested. He's being beaten. He's in the courtyard. Eventually, Peter sneaks in the back. He's warming himself by the fire. People are saying, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter denies Jesus three times. Then immediately, the cock crows. And it's recorded for you in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. And in each case, it builds a little more. So in Matthew's gospel, when the cock crows, it, it says that, at that time, Peter remembered the words of Jesus. And then he went out and he wept bitterly. When you get to Mark, the next gospel, it adds just a little bit. In this same event in Mark's gospel, it says that he remembered the words of Jesus and he thought thereon. 
And then he went out and he wept bitterly. But then you go to the next gospel, and he adds just a little bit more. And in Luke 22, 61 to 62, it says that Jesus turned and looked upon Peter from a distance. Jesus is over here getting whipped and beaten and mocked, and Peter's over here hiding with the crowd and denying his name. And the cock crows, and Jesus turns, and they meet eyes right there. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and went out and wept bitterly. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's the picture. One look from those holy eyes of fire and poof. And you know what? You know what's going to happen at that time? You're going to be reminded of the words of Jesus Christ. You're going to be reminded of all the things you've been taught all your life. You're going to be reminded of all the truths you've heard and understood throughout your life. And can I just say to the wonderful members of this church, to whom much is given, much is required. If you've sat in a Bible-preaching, teaching church that has taught you systematically through the Word of God, and you have a fair understanding of wherever your finger might land in this book, and you pretty much know what the Lord expects of you, when you see Him face to face, it's all going to get real. It's all going to get real. Because He's going to try your works, remember it says, of what sort they are. It's not how busy you were, of what sort they were. And when you realize all that you knew and then all you didn't do, it's going to be bitter. It's going to be bitter. That's reality. Well, let's go on to point number three. Let's talk about the recompense. We'll go back to verse number 10. And it says, it goes on to say that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So, everybody take a deep breath. All right, that's probably enough. Before we get too depressed this morning, I think it is important that you also realize that a judgment isn't that bad if you've actually done good. It's like taking a test. If you've actually put in the time and you've actually studied and you've actually prepared, you kind of don't mind. You're kind of looking forward to it. You're like, I mean, I'd rather not take tests, but if, you know, hey, I studied, I know this material, bring it on, let's do it. I think I got the answers. And nobody's going to be arrogant about it at the judgment seat of Christ, but the idea is if you legitimately have done good in your life, well, it's not all bad, right? It's not all bad. So, letter A, we break it down into a couple of things. Whether it's good or bad, let's start with the good, right? Let's talk about the reward. Because there's a reward for people who do good, right? We'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We looked at some of that. We'll add a couple of extra verses, read a little further down. But I'm going to reread it again to get the context coming down. 1 Corinthians 3.10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereupon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. 
For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So you've got this building analogy, and the foundation is Jesus Christ. If you've received Christ as your Savior, the foundation has been set that can never be torn down. What happens the rest of your Christian life is your building project, building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I worked as a wise master builder. And Paul says, we need to all take heed how we build on our foundation. Right? So verse 12, if any man build upon this foundation of various building materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now let's keep reading. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon after the blowtorch of heaven, he shall receive a reward. Praise God. And if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. That's why you'll be fine in the fire, but the works, well, you know, that's the deal. Of what sort it is. That means the Lord is way more interested in quality over quantity. He's way more interested in quality over quantity. So we just would do ourselves an injustice this morning if I didn't just take a second and ask you to ask yourself, what sort of works have you done for the Lord Jesus Christ since you've been saved? I mean, you came to church to study the Scriptures and to hear from the Lord today. Well, this is what the Lord has for us today. Consider yourself. Don't worry about your neighbor. Don't worry about your friend. What sort of works have you done for the Lord Jesus Christ since you've been saved? See, at the judgment seat of Christ, this fire of God's judgment, it'll consume away the bad stuff, but it refines the good stuff, right? It purifies the good stuff, leaving behind pure rewards. Gold is refined in the fire. Silver is refined in the fire. Precious stones are refined in the fire. Impurities are taken out, and all that's left is purity. Build those things. They're purified by the fire, not consumed. And you live your life investing in spiritual, we'll define it in a minute, gold, silver, or precious stones. Well, then that's a life that is acceptable to God. Look back in our text in chapter 5 and verse number 9. We've skipped over that. We'll get to it. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. So a life building spiritual gold, silver, and precious stones is a life that's acceptable. It's acceptable service to Him. Right? It's not to be whether or not you're accepted into heaven. That's already taken care of. You've laid the foundation. It's your acceptable service. So we study the Bible according to the rules of Bible study. And one of the rules of Bible study is we look at the law of first mention. And how is that word ever used the very first time it appears? The first time the word accepted appears in the Bible is Genesis chapter 4. This is Cain and Abel. Verses 6 and 7. And you know Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the Lord, right? And the Lord is responding now to Cain because his offering was unacceptable. And the Lord said unto Cain, verse 6, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt not thou be accepted? 
And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. What God is doing in the first mention and the usage of the word accepted is he is judging the acceptability of what man is offering to him. That's what he's doing. So we can read, for example, in Hebrews 12, at the end of that chapter, verses 28 and 29, Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. You realize what that means? That means that it's possible to serve God and yet it be unacceptable. That's terrifying. It's possible to serve God and yet it be unacceptable. And whatever is unacceptable... How do you determine whether it's acceptable? Has it been done in the power of the Spirit and in accordance with the Word of God? But I worked very hard. Not in accordance with the Word of God. Sorry, ashes. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm worried about me. That's how you know it's acceptable. We're talking about serving God acceptably, and the very next verse, our God is a consuming fire. So the rewards of gold and silver and precious stones, and and listen, y'all, I know, I'm sorry about this. We just don't have time to take the time and study and prove to you that these are the things that these things represent. Actually, we did that when we studied 1 Corinthians. Go on our website, look at the archives if you're interested. But gold is going to, preponderance of evidence, represent the deity of Jesus Christ God's deity, his very person, silver, is typically going to be used as the price of redemption, and precious stones are going to always represent people. They're they're going to represent people. And, uh, you know, we're not going to prove it right now. You can just jot that down if you're interested, but we're going to see what that looks like practically in just a second before we're done. Okay, so there's reward if you've done well, okay? But letter B, obviously, is the other side of the coin. There's ruin if you don't. There's ruin if, if your works are bad. So if your life was lived in the power of the flesh, walking by sight, only doing what you could do in your own strength, well, at the judgment seat of Christ, all those works, they're going to amount to wood, hay, and stubble. Wood is dead trees. Hay is dead grass. Stubble is dead wheat. Dead, dead, dead. And they all, all of which are totally consumed by fire. Which is why it says in 1 Corinthians 3.15, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. He himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Suffer loss. You're standing in the warehouse. You had boxes. <laughs> You lost boxes. You suffer loss. You worked thinking you had something. But our life is just an investment project. And you invested in the wrong things. You invested gathering up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust can corrupt and thieves can break in and steal and fire can burn. 
You offer to God an unacceptable service. 2 John, verse number 8 says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Let's make sure that we take heed that we don't lose the things that we worked for for the Lord. That we get a full reward because the things that we worked for for the Lord are going to remain. They're going to be purified. Suffering loss may come at the realization you blew your opportunities. You could have done so much. But you didn't take the Bible literally. You didn't take serving the Lord seriously enough. And you wasted your life building for yourself your mansion down here. And God said, I have a mansion for you up there. And it's left unfurnished. Because you didn't prepare for that. It was neglected. That's suffering loss. You could have had a lot more. God gives us an example of that. The Bible example of that is Lot. You know the story of Lot? The story of Lot is a story of great loss, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. It talks about Lot in 2 Peter chapter 2. And the context of 2 Peter chapter 2 is God's judgment. And when it gets to Lot in verses 7 and 8, notice what it says. Speaking of the story of Lot, he says, Then he delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, it says, and delivered just Lot. I want you to understand that when it says just Lot, it means that he was justified. It means that Lot was a saved man. It means that Lot was made just before the Lord. That's what it means. Because it goes on and it calls him for that righteous man. Delivered just Lot does not mean delivered only Lot. Because his daughters made it out with him, right? So delivered just Lot doesn't mean only Lot. It means delivered Lot the saved man, who, by the way, ruined his life in the midst of a bunch of wicked, vile sinners. Dwelling among them, seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. You see... Whether you recognize it or not, you could take the time and go back into Genesis 19 and read the story for yourself. But Lot enjoyed comfort and privilege in Sodom. It says in verse number 1 of Genesis 19 that Lot sat at the gate of Sodom. The seat in the gate of the city was reserved for elders of the city, was reserved for people in positions of respect and admiration. Tell me exactly how a righteous, godly, holy man of God can live in the sin-sick filth of Sodom and Gomorrah and be highly respected and honored and given a seat of prominence if he's doing what he's supposed to be doing for the Lord. How's that possible? Lot was a compromiser. 
So when the angels came and they said, hey, judgment's coming, gather up your family, and he went and tried to tell his sons-in-law and he tried to tell his friends, let's get out of here, God's judgment, they mocked him and laughed him to scorn. you got to be kidding me, right? Probably because Lot was a little dirtier than the Scriptures specifically tell us. What am I listening to you? You were with me last night while we were doing, you know, whatever. I'm not listening to you. So the angels grab him by the hand and they sweep him out of there. And Lot himself was saved, yet so as by fire. But he lost everything. He lost everything. It was all burned up. But because he was saved, yet so as by fire, well, that's eternal security. That's 1 Corinthians 3.15. That's Lot. That's eternal security. That's what we've been looking at the first two weeks in 2 Corinthians 5. So that's how it's going to play out. God loves you so much that he warned you about it ahead of time. So the last question to deal with together, and it won't take that long, is our response. The response. And that's verse 9. And I saved that for last on purpose because I think it's the last thing we should deal with together. It starts off in verse 9 by saying, Wherefore we labor. Now, we know that we never work to be saved, but we are saved to work. We know that, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? By grace are you saved through faith, right? It's not of works. We know that. But verse 10 is in there. We're as workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works after you're saved, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them, right? Because we are new creatures, verse 17, that we'll get to next week. We're new creatures. We are now no longer Jew, we are no longer Gentile, we are sons of God, we are new creatures in Jesus Christ. And sons of God are created to work. The very first son of God recorded in the Bible is Adam. Luke 3.38 refers to Adam as the son of God. And in Genesis chapter 2, God placed Adam, the son of God, in the Garden of Eden with a job to do, to dress and to keep it. This son of God was created and placed on the earth to do works. So, wherefore, we labor. So let's compare wherefore we labor in verse 9 with in verse number 11 where it says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... We persuade men, because I believe this is the labor that we're supposed to do. We are supposed to be persuading men. That's preaching. Uh, People often ask me, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? And one of the ways that I like to describe it when we have our homiletics classes for the young guys learning and all that sort of thing, is I'll say, well, preaching is like if you ever had a speech class in school, preaching would be like persuasive speech. Teaching is just informative. You go to a class, they give you a lot of information, you have some notes, you jot them down, now I know the information, I didn't used to know the information, that's informative speech. But when you add an element of emotion to it, and you're compelling people to change their behavior, you're looking to persuade them to make a change. That's persuasive speech, that's preaching, right? Convincing men to change something. That's the labor that we're to be involved in. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we, church, we are no longer Jews or Greeks. We, the born-again sons of God, preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. This is the work we are to be engaged in. Wherefore we labor, we persuade men. And that persuasion, well, that was Paul's manner. That's what he engaged his ministry in, preaching and persuading people. We see it all through the book of Acts. Oh, and by the way, we are commanded throughout that we are to follow Paul's example. So I want you to notice some of these references. It won't take long. Acts 13, 43. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. That was during his first missionary journey. Acts 18.4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. That was on his second missionary journey. In fact, it so got to their got to him is that in verse number 13 the Jews hated him so much but they knew this is what he did in verse 13 they're accusing him saying this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law well we've crossed the dispensation and they didn't understand things are changing Acts 19 26 moreover you see in here that not alone in Ephesus but almost throughout all Asia this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. That's on his third missionary journey. All he ever did was persuade people. To the very end of his physical life and ministry in Acts 28, 23, and when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses, out of the prophets, from morning until evening. At this point in his life, he's under house arrest in Rome. He's not, if you could say he's under quarantine. And people are coming to see him, and everybody that would show up in front of his face, he would preach Jesus to him to the very end of his life. You want to take a guess what we should be doing? Especially in these last days before the rapture and the soon coming judgment seat of Christ? Well, this is the last statement in your notes. Like the Apostle Paul, you should be persuading people to follow the Lord. That's what you should be doing. And can I just tell you, that's more than just letting your life shine by the, you know, clean living that I'm sure you have. You have to actually open your mouth to persuade people. So Paul says in Colossians 1.28, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working which worketh in me, Mightily. There you have it. Preaching and laboring right together. Laboring, persuading, preaching, laboring. That's what it is. That's the labor. That's the, that's the word that we got to do. So what should we be doing right down to the last seconds before the calling out of the church? Well, you should be involved in evangelism. You should win people to Jesus Christ. That's your, that's your silver. That's the redemption of souls. Uh, you should be involved in discipleship. That's investing in other believers to grow them up. They become your precious stones. 
And you should be teaching and instructing people about who God really is. Oh, and standing against who God really isn't, by the way. That's your goal. That's your deity. Now I'm going to wrap this up, and I'm going to read to you a poem. It's actually a fairly lengthy little poem, but it's written by a famous Philadelphian age missionary named C.T. Studd. He was born in 1860, died in 1931. He's a British missionary to China. He went to India. He was in Central Africa. God used him greatly. His famous quote I put in your notes there. But listen to the entire poem that he wrote. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Let's just spend a minute praying that our life reflects that attitude. Let's pray together.